I'm William Chamberlain of the Popular Materials Department. Today, Clint Tatum and I have an interview with director Peter Himes. Peter Himes has directed such movies as Outland, Running Scared, End of Days, and 2010. 2010 will be playing at the Downtown Public Library at 2 p.m. on Saturday, August 14, 2010 at 615 Church Street in the main auditorium. Now to the interview. In doing research, I've read you were a drummer, a painter, worked as a CBS newscaster, and covered the Vietnam War as a war correspondent. What led you to writing and directing movies? Well, first place, you read that I did a lot of things. You didn't read that I did any of them well, so that, that point should be made. I grew up in the theater. My parents were in the theater. My grandfather was in the theater. I grew up in the performing arts. I started as an art student from the time I was literally eight years old, uh, went to art schools and conservatories. That's how I grew up. Started playing when I was very young, fortunate enough to, to play with some very good musicians, and began writing very young, a lot of lowercase poetry, uh, which was very fashionable when I was going to school. And a lot of, you know, I seek in my life frailty, which, by the way, could get you to score at the High School of Music and Art. I found that with both the background of my home and, and my obsessive compulsiveness about trying to put an image in front of people and try to put two words that made sense in front of people and, and try to put two notes that please people, I found that the, the, the greatest combination of all of those things and relevance was documentary filmmaking. So I wanted to make documentary filmmaking. And I, I worked at CBS for almost seven years I graduated high school at 16 and college at 20, so I, I mean, I was pretty young, and I started, I learned. And one of the things I learned was I really wasn't that good. I was much more consumed with taking photographs that were fascinating photographs, and I was much more interested in writing two words that were interesting words rather than words that were factual. I don't think a camera is a recording device. And I decided that I, I, I wanted to write film. A documentary director is somebody who captures an incident. A, a film director is somebody who makes the incident happen. So I, I, that's what I did. So I decided I'm going to go make film. And I started to write film, and for some absolutely bizarre reason, people bought what I wrote, and I started to make film. In 1971, you wrote and produced T.R. Baskin, which starred Candace Bergen. And I'm just curious, what was the inspiration for that movie? Well, T.R. Baskin was a, a very early women's lib movie. I wanted to write about what it was like to be a young girl, to be both taken advantage of and ultimately to take advantage of your own surroundings. And that, you know, a young girl, and, and I, this is not to say I didn't admire it, I loved it. I, I loved Mary Talamore, except this was not about a girl who comes to a big city and, and throws her hat in the air and the camera freezes. This is about somebody who kind of learns the hard way. I married a feminist, I am a feminist. Um, it's just kind of what I wanted to write about. In 1972, you wrote and directed a private eye movie called Good Night, My Love, which was an ABC movie of the week, and it was your first movie as a director. Was making a movie of the week a good way to cut your teeth in the world of filmmaking? This was at a time when television was considered a vat of sulfuric acid, and if you stuck your toe in it, you'd pull out a stump, so you were told to stay away from television, and I was kind of new on the block in terms of film, and I was being offered a, a lot of stuff to, to write and produce. However, I was also told very specifically that I couldn't direct. You had to be a much more experienced director and 
and a lot of people wanted me to write and produce for themselves, and I did not want to do that. Barry Diller was running ABC Circle Movie of the Week, where he had to make, I think, two movies of the week. They were shot in 12 days. And I said, if if I take this plunge into this vat of sulfuric acid and I make something that people like, maybe I, I can get noticed, except I don't want people directing what I write. I didn't enjoy this process. My agent at the time, I remember, called me some very foul names and said, you're making a terrible mistake. And I went to see Diller, and, and I said, look, you you, you, ha- you make these movies in 12 days, and, and you get people to write them. You get people about whom you know the bottom line, and that is they'll get it done. On the other hand, you also know the top line. They're not very good. They're just good enough. Let me write something for you. You know I get offered a lot of money to write, so let me write something for you, for your money, and you got to let me direct. And uh, he said, um, what ideas do you have? And I said, well, I have one idea about an attempt by the United States government to fake a space shot, and I have another idea. I've always wanted to, I love Raymond Chandler, and I've always wanted to do a period detective movie about a detective and a dwarf. And he said, well, don't do the space one, do the detective and a dwarf. But we don't really do period movies. I said, well, this has to be period. And Barry Diller being Barry Diller gave me a chance. I mean, he also gave Steven Spielberg a chance. Gave Michael Crichton a chance, all literally within about two weeks of each other. Stephen responded by making probably the best television movie anybody's ever made called Duel. Michael made a wonderful film called Binary, and he gave me a chance. And I made the film, and it was wildly overpraised, and it got me some, some notice. Two of your movies, Busting and The Star Chamber, and even two of um, Running Scared to a certain extent, share a rather pessimistic view of the American judicial system. I'm curious the origins of, of this attitude when you did these movies. I don't think Running Scared does at all. I think it's a different issue. Busting and, and, and The Star Chamber, Busting just came out of a lot of research. I was approached by these wonderful producers, Bob Chardoff and Irwin Winkler. They said, we want you to do a movie about vice cops, and that's all we have. And I went, okay. And, and I just spent six to eight months doing a lot of research uh, with police officers and prostitutes and pimps and drug dealers. And this was kind of the story I came up with. I don't know. I, don't, I, I think, yeah, there's a certain amount of pessimism about what it's like being a cop. Because I think, I think most cops are pessimists, after all. If nothing else, they're, c- they're cynics. I have to say, I think Star Chamber was a misunderstood movie. Star Chamber was a movie that when people would watch it, they would kind of think, gee, it's a bit of a vigilante movie, when in fact the movie takes a rather severe 90-degree angle turn, and it turns out it's an anti-vigilante movie. It turns out the vigilantes are wrong. But it also you know, came at a time where there were some kind of bizarre technicalities going on in the law. Every single case in Star Chamber is based on a real case. It's a people versus Krivda about common garbage is real. I mean, they're all real incidents. They're enough to make you go a little nuts. In your movie, Our Time, there's a scene. I've only seen this movie once when it was first released, but there's a scene of a backroom abortion, and Robert Walden played the abortionist. And this scene had a big impact on me when I saw it. And I was curious, was the movie controversial when it was released due to its subject matter? Yeah, a little bit, sure. It was a movie that was really kind of showing when you make people feel either criminalized or guilty about getting pregnant and their kids, and you don't really offer them, not only medically, socially, the option, this is one of the things that can happen when that girl dies. 
You co-wrote the screenplay to Telephone, which starred Charles Bronson. I'm curious, how close did you work with the director, Don Siegel? I was originally, I was, I was asked to write and direct the movie. I wrote a screenplay. I wrote the film, and then MGM said, we don't want you to direct the movie. In fact, I don't think they ever wanted me to direct the movie. So first they uh, went to Richard Lester, and I were, Richard Lester wanted to make changes, and I worked with him, and he wanted to make changes. And then uh, they wanted Don Siegel, and Don Siegel wanted to make changes, and I made changes with him. It was a very painful experience for me because it was not a picture I'd ever planned on writing and have somebody else direct. I found Siegel to be, uh, as with Lester, I found them both very, very bright with very, very different ideas as to the kind of movies they wanted to make, and none of them were the kind of movies that I wanted to make. I never saw the movie, to be honest with you. But it was kind of interesting working with those guys because they, they were bright people. Um, I'd like to ask you about working with Hal Holbrook in the Star Chamber and Capricorn One. In these movies, he delivers these great speeches that you wrote, and Mr. Holbrook just totally sells in both of these films. I was just wondering, could you talk a little bit about the collaboration between Mr. Holbrook and yourself during these moments in the movie? It's kind of a collaboration between an average violinist and a Stradivarius. Hal is just a brilliant actor. My friend Stephen Bochco has a, a, a name for actors like Hal, and he calls them word spitters. You can write reams and reams of dialogue. You could write speeches, which many writers like, like myself or like to write. And somehow or other, Hal will make it make sense, because he's just so good. I will say that the only, there are only two times in my life I've ever delivered what I consider to be intelligent direction to any actor. And one of them was to Hal in Star Chamber, he started, it was actually our first day shooting, and he started the shoot, and he started to see with he and Michael in a Chinese restaurant, and he turned to me and he said, I'm, I don't know, I'm not getting it. Uh, what should I do? And I said, I don't know. Think Jewish. He went, oh, I got it. And then that was it. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's all I ever said to him. He's dazzling. He's dazzling. He makes, he makes writing sound better than it is. Skipping ahead to the, in Outland, there's Francis Sternhagen, who plays Dr. Lazarus, and Sean Connery, who plays Marshall O'Neill. And in this movie, these characters become friends, and the scenes between Connery and Sternhagen are my favorite moments in the movie, and it's not the heads exploding. How did you rehearse these moments? And I was curious, it's rare to see a man and a woman on film be friends, and I'm just curious, did they become friends off camera? What was their camaraderie like? In, in, in the first place, Francis is just a terrific person, and Sean is as good a guy as I've ever met in my life, so they both respected and like each other. That part that Franny played was written for a man, and at the very last second, without changing a word of dialogue, I just cast a woman, thinking it would be a little less of a cliche if I cast a woman. So there was no, there, there was absolutely no attention paid to anything other than two people talking and two people interacting. First, a bit adversarial and then a bit friendly. However, the only time a man and a woman meet on screen, it cannot be, there cannot be a sexual overtone or undertone to it. There's got to be a, a time when a man and a woman meet on screen and work on screen, and they're just friends. So that's what I want. Starting with 2010, you began doing your cinematography for all of your movies. Uh, what brought about that? Well, I had studied being a photographer starting at around age 10. I studied it very classically. I 
actually apprenticed for and worked for a portrait photographer. I studied plate photography. I studied monorail photography. I studied Scheinflug techniques. I, I, I really kind of classically learned it. The union in, in America, the IA, just said, no, we're not going to let you in. And then I kind of, I would hire a, uh, basically a standby cameraman and really, you know, do a lot of photography myself. Learned a lot from some of the guys I work with. And then the IA said, you can't do that. I said, I can't do what? And they said, well, you can't really kind of perform the function. And I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm the director. And if you want to argue this out, let's go to court. And the IA sued me for $12 million. And, the, the, and, and Fox and the producer, Frankie Blondes. And the suit was dismissed. And when I did 2010, they said, okay, you're in the union. Uh, except you can't work for anybody else. And I went, okay. And I've been in the union ever since. You just did a film, the latest Universal Soldier, with your son as you being the cinematographer. How did that go over? When he had his birthday, which was during shooting, I bought him a watch. And I inscribed on the back of it, happy birthday, boss. He was the boss. I did what he wanted. I would, I would advocate for what I wanted, except the decision was always his. He dialed me back a lot of times. Do you think you'd be a cinematographer on another film? For somebody talented, yes. Sure. While you're on the topic of cinematography, um, in your movie, Stay Tuned, there's a segment in which John Ritter is transmitted into a black-and-white private detective movie. How did you like working in black-and-white? Would you like to make an entire movie in black-and-white? I enjoyed it. I don't know if I want to make a black-and-white movie. There's too much to do. There's too much to learn. There's too much to... For, there's too much improvement I have to make working in color before I would tackle black and white. I, I mean, the only modern photographer I know of who really, 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 really did it was Gordon Willis in Manhattan, which I think is one of the two or three most beautiful black and white movies I've ever seen. So I don't know. I, I, I think I see things really in color. On the subject of Stay Tuned, there's another segment where the lead characters are thrown into a Chuck Jones cartoon, RoboCat. And I was curious, was that scene sequence scripted, or did Chuck Jones work that out himself? It was half and half. My, Chuck was my idol, and to work with him was one of the greatest thrills I ever had in my life. He came up with most, if not all, of the gags. How to get from A to B was in the original script. However, it was just how to get from A to B. Chuck filled in everything. Chuck was not only brilliant, was... For somebody who idolized him, he lived up to my idolatry, both as an artist and as a man. It was really a great experience. In the end of day's audio commentary, there's a moment towards the end of the movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger lays down his weapon, and he's in a church, and essentially he finds his belief in God once again. In the audio commentary, you stated that um, you didn't, you didn't know whether the audience would buy this or not. What struck me when you said that, and I've listened to a couple other audio commentaries, is that I'm, maybe I got this right or wrong, but making a movie is essentially a roll of the dice. Am I right in thinking this? I don't think you could be more right. Yes, of course. I mean, it's, it's not essentially it's what it is. You are guessing that the story you are telling, that the joke you are telling, is, is going to be liked. And you have nothing except faith in the story and, and the people who are telling it. I'd like to thank Peter Himes for doing the interview. 
And if you would like to hear more, come to the Downtown Public Library at 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. on Saturday, August 14, 2010, to see the movie 2010. Mr. Himes has taped a brief introduction, and it's free. Hope to see you there. You've been listening to Nashville Public Library's Popmatic Podcast. For more information, please visit www.library.nashville.org. That's on the interwebs.